Oh, hey, hey, am I on the right podcast link? <laughs> Is that Janet Ainsley? For our listeners, you you will probably remember that we had Janet on as a guest when we did our end of the year episode and looking forward at 2023. We had such a good time with you, Janet. We would love to keep recording some podcast episodes with you. Are you down for that? You know what? I'm so down for that. I'm, you know, I found my tribe here, the the energy and renewable energy nerds of the world can convene and under pipelines and turbines. It's an honor to be asked. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Welcome to Pipelines and Turbines. Power up your podcast playlist and take the pulse of Canada's energy transition with Leo Rothschild, Jason Switzer, and Janet Ainsley. Welcome to Pipelines and Turbines. I'm your co-host, Leo Rothschild, and I am joined today by Jason Switzer. Jay, talk to me. What what is happening? Because we've had a couple of episodes now without our other partner in crime, who is typically Dan Zilnick. For those who've been listening to this show for a while, know he's kind of like, I don't know, what would you say, like the villain on this show? I don't know. He's he's always got a fun, uh, witty comeback for everything. Uh, where is Dan Zilnick? Well, you know, Dan has been able to monetize his sense of humor so successfully that his <laughs> uh, bespoke consulting company, Afara, was acquired by Ernst & Young. And unfortunately, you know, now now you have to pay a lot more than we were willing to pay for his opinions. So anyway, Godspeed to you, Dan. We're, we're thrilled for you. You're making all of us non-profiteers look bad. And so now we, we got to go, you know, start a reality show to uh, bring on a new host. We should have like a duel to the death or something, you know, to choose a new co-host. Yeah, I just want to wish Dan all the best. Dan, we, we love you. We miss you. We 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 won't have Dan Zilnick uh, as the co-host anymore, but hopefully we can bring him on as a as a guest at some point in the near future. But in the meantime, what well, are we going to do? I should say I plan to use him as a punching bag for many of my jokes uh, now that he's not here to oh, respond. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's no doubt about that. Um, but in the meantime, what are we going to do about the co-hosting? Because I thought it worked Right. Well, having three of us and, you know, it would be awesome if we could get somebody who was able to like wax poetically about politics, about ESG, sustainability, energy. Do we know somebody like that? Oh, hey, hey, am I on the right podcast link? Oh, is that Janet Ainsley? Oh, oh my gosh. Lord. It is you. Hey, Jason. Oh, oh my gosh. Here comes trouble. For our listeners, you you will probably remember that we had Janet on as a guest when we did our end of the year episode and looking forward at 2023. We had such a good time with you, Janet. We would love to keep recording some podcast episodes with you. Are you down for that? You know what? I'm so down for that. I'm, you know, I found my tribe here, the the energy and renewable energy nerds of the world can convene and under pipelines and turbines, but I don't know if I can quite feel Phil Dan's, you know, boots, shoes, blundstones, whatever you got on out there, Dan. I, I have no uh, idea. Um, uh, but I do like the idea. I'm sure they're very expensive Italian wingtips. Yeah, right? Yeah. You called him a villain. I don't know. I mean, I've been made out to be quite villain-like in the past, but, you know, that'll, that'll take some imagining on my part. 
And you said his sense of humor is really good, so that's pressure because I can only assure you, Dan, that my sense of humor is only exceeded by my amazing good looks. And that's not saying a lot. So anyway, like uh, it's, it's an honor to be asked. I'm I'm very happy to be here. We're excited to have you to fill the roster and especially, as I said in the previous episode, to have somebody who actually knows about politics when they're talking about politics. So we should get into it. So on that note around politics, we know that there is a new federal budget coming. And so the last one was interesting because it was after like two years of not setting a budget in the midst of the pandemic and It was uh, Christy Freeland's first. Now she is a veteran in the uh, hot seat of finance minister and a new budget is expected. Some of us have a very close relationship to Alberta and Alberta recently passed this sovereignty act within a united Canada, whatever the heck that means. And so that, in theory, gives them some cover to push back on any federal overreach, I guess is the way that they might describe it. How will the federal budget play out in Alberta, and in particular, in an election year? Wow, what a great question. Um, I'm going to let Janet go first on that one, for sure. (laughs) Well, you know, you might be able to respond, you know, Jason, to some of my ideas on that, because, you know, I think the, the federal government finds itself in a position where almost anything it puts out in the budget on on clean energy is going to be politicized in the run-up to the Alberta election in in May. And, you know, they've got not only the budget, but other pieces moving as well. We've got the oil and gas emissions cap and this broader Mm -hmm. discussion about, you know, using an enhanced price mechanism or cap and trade or, you know, other ways of getting at that. That's all got deep implications that are, you know, probably worthy of of a podcast on its own. The clean electricity regulations. You know, that is, um, they said they were going to have that to Gazette one for that, you know, the Canada Gazette where people, the government publishes draft regulations by the end of the year, but they didn't. And they are pushing that to kind of pre-budget. And I think they're really wrestling with what that's going to cost coast to coast to try to achieve net zero from our electricity system by 2035. And that would have, of course, have really big implications in Alberta for our natural gas generation and, you know, you know, our renewable supply as well. So, it's going to be, they're going to have to thread this needle very carefully in Ottawa to try to create a good budget that supports clean energy. You know, they said that. They've said it also has to be fiscally responsible. Not too sure how those things go together necessarily. Um, and not create um, more division than we already have because it's, it's fundamentally that division is inhibiting us from actually moving forward on some of these issues. And I, maybe some other people like that, that we're not able to move forward. So I'll just leave it at that. Jason, uh, build on that. If you are advising Christy Freeland as she's thinking through this, how much of a factor is Alberta? Uh, maybe it's okay to sow that division in election year. I don't know. And frankly, is Alberta even important in the grand scheme of things? Uh, if you're looking to really advance issues uh, around climate change and the sort of quote-unquote feminist budget priorities that uh, we've seen in past budgets? You know, it's it's been interesting. A lot of the conversations I've been having with government officials these days, uh, you know, off the record, the, the conversation always turns to the price of butter and the sort <laughs> of escalation in cost of living. So, you know, there's there's kind of two competing stories at work here. One is 
you know, we have to make investments to enable transition around things like CCS. We talk about lots because that's where I live these days. Uh, and in, in other domains to enable the, the transition and ensure that Canada, you know, is able to kind of play its part and can compete effectively with the, the kind of war of subsidies that's been sparked in and amongst the OECD countries. But at the same time, the politics of, you know, continuing to be a profligate spender and, you know, kind of break the, the reputation of the Canadian financial system, you know, these are, these are big risks. And Canada, you know, frankly, has done pretty poorly in terms of improving our productivity. There was a scathing report in the Globe and Mail just last week about the performance of the superclusters. And, mm. you know, while you might debate whether or not that is a, a fair assessment, you know, I, I would say it's a little early to tell the, uh, you know, the, the kind of net effect of all this is to put a lot of political pressure on decision makers around, you know, spend or not spend. But if you keep spending, how is it affecting my cost of living? Your reaction to that, Janet, and, uh, and in particular, I want to pick up on that point around the superclusters because that was always seen as risky, right? Should the government make big bets on innovation, uh, especially early stage innovation? Um, wh- what do you think, Janet? Is that uh, is that going to create some gun shyness or doubling down? Well, you know, the world has changed a little bit since the superclusters because the competitive environment has changed with the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, and I know probably listeners to this podcast are kind of sick of hearing about the IRA and, you know, but it, it's really real. You know, um, there's there's Canadian companies in the sustainable energy space or in the CCUS space or carbon capture space that are, you know, being courted by U.S. Uh, firms right now because there's much more opportunity down there to move those projects forward than here on a strictly um, competitive basis and accessing the kind of capital to get to get going. And I totally agree with, with, with the outcome though, and what Jason said, um, of the super clusters, but the government made, I think, a fundamental mistake is that, you know, they, um, tend to believe that it's not just a matter of, you know, creating the, the money, the pots of money, big bucks, say 10, 20, you know, billion dollars, you, you pick a, a big number, but they want to also kind of say how innovation is going to occur and by, um, you know, kind of government will award this and kind of guide innovation in the direction that it will. Whereas I think the Inflation Reduction Act gets kind of messy because it really just pours money into the private sector and allows them to do the innovation. And that's one area where we kind of we kind of failed. We didn't mobilize the private capital against that super cluster spend to really get actual investment going, the iterative uh, ideas. Um, that's how technology is developed. There's not this, aha, we solved it moment. Typically, it's you know. Sorry, what, what was that moment? Could you could you repeat that again? <laughs> I do it. <laughs> the first time we've had anyone sing on this podcast, which uh, is probably appropriate. Your listeners are like, please don't. Um, our ears are bleeding. Oh, they're your listeners now, Janet. <laughs> oh, sorry, people. Sorry. Um. But, you know, you need to get that kind of build it, you know, build it better, build it better again, that 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 commercialization iteration going in order to get better at clean tech in particular. It's pots and pans. It's industrial. And that's where I think we have to go. We have to start thinking of what are those industries of the future, the supply chains of the future. And it's not just taxpayer money. 
that needs to go into it. There has to be private capital moving alongside it. And the government needs to start to understand how they do that. I don't think this government is particularly well equipped to understand that. So how are they going to get help in a, in a good way? And that's uh, kind of a, a big question because there's a lot of people that want to help them in a very selfish way. But there's, you know, how can it be more systematic and uh, objective to get money moving in the economy? Hey, so, Janet, take us behind the scenes on the budget process, if you can. So, like, how does this stuff actually end up on the other side? Like, how, how do you how do you kind of set up a program like this and, and get it through the kind of past uh, Christian's fancy footwear? I don't think anybody really knows the answer to that. Probably not <laughs> even Mr. Freeland. Because there's so many cooks in the kitchen, and it comes down to everyone has an ask. You know, I remember... When I was there having a, a late night conversation with the chief of staff to the minister of finance and just he had to vent to me about all the crazy ideas that he had been, you know, getting pitched by all sorts of manner of political staff or minister, um, opposition, MP, et cetera. And, you know, it really comes down to the government mobilizing a budget around their priorities. And, you know, there's kind of a, the, the machinery of government that, that, the, that, of course, they've got to keep moving. But then how do they try to mobilize the rest of the, the framework to, to advance their agenda? And, you know, there's some good ideas and really good um, advice that comes in from officials. You know, you can talk about kind of good incentives and good spending. Uh, there's symbolic spending. I personally think my favorite symbolic spending? spending program was a tree for every Canadian. Does anyone here remember a tree for every yeah. Canadian? Yeah. I think that was the 2016 federal budget. Yes. Anyway, you could mail to the government and ask for a tree and they'd send you a tree in the mail. But the survival rate of even these saplings was like, you know, terrible. So like <laughs> a tree for every Canadian uh, or EV subsidies. Is that really a good place for the government to be putting money for, you know, arguably a bunch of rich people to be buying Teslas? So, you know, yes, does it drive you know, adoption of EVs or is it the people that could be afford to be buying them anyway and would want to can now access? So there's, you know, you have to have that good scrutiny of a lot of the ideas that come forward. And, um, you know, I think the government sometimes does that well. And then other times they 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 don't. They need, uh, you know, some flashy things in the budget as well as some really, truly material and meaningful things in the budget. So. I've heard you come back to the the topic of investing in innovation a few times. And yeah, it's interesting to hear you be quite critical of that, Janet. I I would just add that one of the things that uh, I haven't seen government do well is um, actually say, not only are we going to invest in these innovations, but we're going to buy them. We're going to create the market for them as, you know, a significant procurement vehicle in the country to invest in these technologies. So it's not like we invest in them and then they have to go sell their technology to the U.S. in order to actually have a market. Absolutely, 5,000%. You know, part of that idea of how do you create innovation is how do you create the markets and maybe how do you apply an incentive to a premium in in a market, like take low-carbon fuels, right? So how do you provide an incentive to create a premium in the market that, you know, if you're a low carbon energy producer, you can go sign a contract uh, with 
you know, a, a customer, but also a government to get that money. And then you can now, you know, finance your project based on that contract and the revenues you expect in the future. So those kinds of ideas, not just, you know, let's get a super cluster in five universities and like, you know, this stuff, you know, that's got its place. But typically that's called, you know, the the kind of the, the, the grant programs. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, universities have to measure the effectiveness of these things. But we need to do more of what you talked about, create these markets, create really bankable opportunities that get private money moving and start to um, then kind of build on themselves in the future. And hopefully those subsidies sometimes just disappear because they're no longer needed. Now you've created a sustainable market. So I want to I want to move on to one other adjacent topic. But uh, but before we do nuts and bolts, when are we going to see this budget be tabled? I don't think anyone knows at this okay. present moment. Typically, it's March. Okay, so and so that's that's a rough time frame. Okay, that's a rough time frame, but that's that's a very interesting time frame as well, given the Alberta elections in May. Right. <laughs> so and we know we, that the road to decarbonization runs through Alberta. That's, that's right. right. That's right. The other interesting federal Alberta kind of uh, tension at play, and as we talked about like investments in innovation and jobs of the future. We are also expecting some federal legislation around a just transition. So my question, and uh, and I'll pose this to you, Jason, my question is, what is a just transition? Well, yeah, so where does the idea, the concept of a just transition come from? And really it's from the labor movement. And this concern around the, the you know, <laughs> the waves of creative destruction that will come as we start to phase out of combustion based industries um, or CO2 based industries. And, you know, what does that do for the people who've been working in that in those sectors? And we know from experience in Europe, uh, the UK, I mean, you know, the, the shutdown of coal mines and so on. Uh, the experience in France with the Gilets Jaunes, you know, the, the kind of street protests around the race and the diesel tax, that as you start monkeying with the levers of an economy, create some very uh, significant political shifts and, and employment shifts. And it's it's great to say, hey, oh, yeah, we'll just, you know, retool people for jobs in the solar industry or whatever. But but the reality is that, as as we all know, when you live somewhere, you tend to want to stay there and your kids are involved in things there and your lives are intertwined and your land values, right? So as a very particular example, uh, I remember chatting with an executive from a utility company who is from one of, the, uh, from Hannah, from one of the, you know, coal towns in, in Alberta. Hometown of Nickelback. Oh, nice. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you do know how Nickelback is, don't you? I'm <laughs> a huge Nickelback fan. I feel like I've been apologizing for them for years. Um, no, the oh. uh, so Hannah, uh, you know, if, if you had a mortgage in that town, if you had a house, uh, all of a sudden, the, the you know, the value of your home cratered as soon as as soon as the you know acceleration of the coal phase out started to step in. So, I mean, the um, so the real goal of just transition is to try and set up financial and you know training mechanisms and other kinds of support to prevent. What is a huge dislocation or potentially huge dislocation of people? And we all know how it ends, which is convoys in Ottawa. Mm, interesting. Janet, what, what would you add to the discussion around just transition and uh, and also just um, build on it to sort of remind listeners, how did we get to this place where Alberta is now putting out statements that say 
we need to protect the uh, local industry from this federal legislation? Well, this is just such a, a loaded topic that neither um, our provincial government in Alberta nor the federal government has distinguished themselves through through effective communication or, um, frankly, emotional uh, intelligence to respond to this. Like, the just transition is a terrible term. It ever has been, you know, since um, I love the labor movement's, you know, roots of this, but the people that I know that hate it are all kind of workers, blue-collar workers in the Alberta economy, and they don't want to be just transitioned anywhere. So the roots of it, you know, I think Jason explained it well, but, you know, the federal government had kind of a just transition idea that started out with the accelerated or the phase out of coal. Alberta took it back to the accelerated phase out of coal. So I think when we think about it in Alberta specifically, you know, there's headlines of, you know, these very, uh, these real families and, you know, these very tragic situations in places like Hannah where people had to uproot their, their families and move and the government was supporting them with, you know, basically welfare to do that. And that is not an image of success or freedom or free will or anything like that. All the values that Albertans hold, hold dear. And that's where I think this idea of the, the just transition kind of being more like welfare or something that's fo- foisted upon us. Um, and that's the definition of what it's become. And they want to talk about it more like sustainable jobs. That's marginally better. But again, I think all of these concepts overall, well, particularly the just transition, um, ignores the fact that there's there's potentially a very big opportunity in in decarbonization and uh, energy development that requires this very similar set of skills. I'm on the advisory board uh, for the Future Skills Center. Um, I think they might have gotten supercluster funding, so I should probably be nicer to superclusters. <laughs> but um, you know, but their their all their analysis says that there's all the skills of like oil and gas workers, whether it's, you know, electricians or pressure or heat, these are also things that we need for hydrogen or CCUS, you know, geophysics, like we need all of these things and uh, safety. Um, So it's not even so much that we're going to be, you know, having way too high unemployment. I think, I think it's going to be the reverse. I think we are going to have, if we get the energy transition right, we are going to have more jobs than we know how to fill. I just want to add one other element that I I don't think we've touched on that is an important aspect of just transition as well. And if you read the discussion paper that uh, the federal government put together, which is really interesting, and it's a short read available on the government website, but they're also talking about just transition being an opportunity as we're moving into a a uh, you know modern economy. Uh, that it's also addressing some of the barriers that exist in the current economy, especially around creating opportunities for groups that represent various genders, persons with disabilities, indigenous peoples, black and other racialized individuals, as well as LGBTQ2S plus and others that uh, may have been historically marginalized. I think that's a really important aspect of the just transition that perhaps might get lost in the vitriol of, you know, debating whether this is a strategy that is going to negatively affect oil and gas jobs in Alberta or not. Um, I think that's a really important part of the conversation that uh, perhaps is getting missed in the headlines. Well, we have to do that anyway, right? Because again, we're going to have ways, we're going to, I think if we get it right, we're going to have a lot of jobs, not enough workers. We have to harness all the talent we can find out there. 
the people that, you know, I do a lot of volunteer work with the Southern Alberta Institute of Technology, the people that I see when I was at campus yesterday, you know, that's the next generation of talent and the senior leadership of energy companies in, in Alberta and in Calgary doesn't look like, <laughs> like the students at state just from a racial gender uh, perspective. And they are going to demand a much more inclusive workplace than we have to provide it if we want them. So I think all those things are going to happen as part of the the requirements to to do business. Government doesn't have to mandate it. I think that the the the, the companies are going to you know need it to to ensure their success. Jason, do you think that it's partly a, a mislabeling? Should the focus have just been around this is a program that's going to create a healthy transition for coal workers because they're the ones really on the front lines of this, aren't they? I mean, you talked about Hannah, Alberta, but Canada is phasing out coal by 2030 and Alberta will be coal free this year. Coal free at the end of 23. Like yeah. so significant change happening. And so should, could have the focus been really around making sure that those co-workers get a soft landing, would that have been better received? Well, you know, I, I would maybe frame it a slightly different way, which is to say that the experience of NAFTA is actually a, probably the most relevant, and in particular the experience of uh, sort of labor loss and changes in industrial kind of focus as a consequence of, you know, a significant change like that. And so, the yeah, absolutely, like, uh, we need to think about coal. We also need to think about oil and gas and how the redistribution of, you know, opportunities. I mean, it's, it's great to say that there are these opportunities, but they're, they're remote from each other in distance and time, right? Um, and so, you know, you are going to see, you know, municipalities that may become depopulated. And we have a lot of experience of that in Alberta, of course. Uh, if you've ever driven down the three, the new, uh, energy transition corridor into BC. You see, um, you know, of course, Frank, which used to be a huge coal mining community. Um, you know, there's been a, a, a kind of a, a, a pattern of displacement and redeployment of, um, of people and, and it happens over time. And the question is how to, how to make it more sustainable in a, in a way like sustainable in the sense of socially tolerable. Um, and, and where you don't end up creating huge dislocations for people. Well, I, you know, again, I don't want to sound like I'm a Pollyanna and me, but I, I, I prefer to be an optimist. I think I have to be an optimist, otherwise I'd stay in bed. Uh, but, um, you know, I think po- the positive focus of, you know, the words just transition again, I get a really negative connotation. I start to think about, you know, I see, families in the street losing their home. You know, that's what I see when I hear the words just transition. But when I hear sustainable jobs, I see people working. I see people building solar projects. I I, I see, you know, uh, very skilled technical people working on, you know, how to do uh, carbon storage. Um, You know, I see different ideas. And I think that's the, the focus of what are those sources of new jobs? And, you know, that is a more exciting idea. And, you know, we have to think about, you know, how we get people new skills. But in some cases, like I said, they're the same skills. Under the school, the Mafail, you know, School of Energy at State, this environmental technologist is in that school. Uh, how to be a landman, you know, even if you're a woman, you're a landman, is in that school. And those are things that are going to be needed well into the future, those skills. So I think we just need to, you know, tone it down, take a very pragmatic approach to this. 
look at where the new opportunities, where the puck is going, and how do we support those industries um, to try to get them on their feet. And, you know, like we said earlier, create new markets. We have our, our largest trading partner to the south moving to create some of these same new markets. So where is those, those opportunities for alignment and growth? Because we have the comparative advantage fundamentally in many ways. Um, but the idea that Alberta is going to be a have-not province or something like that by 2050 when Canada achieves net zero is just not one. Uh, I don't blame anybody for not being able to get excited about that. That sounds really dire and terrible. So we're kind of reaching the end of, of, of this episode here. We We talked about the coming federal legislation. We talked about the just transition in both circumstances. We uh, we also addressed how it, it might play out in Alberta. Um, Janet, you're, uh, you know, hopefully feeling like uh, at home here because we're touching on some political issues, which you have a, a background in. We're talking about Alberta, which uh, is where you're based. How How is your uh, first episode as a as a co-host of Pipelines and Turbines? Well, a co-host. Well, I still feel like I'm, you know, the, the junior amongst uh, the, the more experienced and articulate here. You know, but it, it's I really love this this podcast and I love the conversations we have. And I love hearing from, a, you know, the few people who have reached out to me that have heard it. And, um, you know, we'd like to get I think I'd love to get into some other topics like, you know, there's so much to talk about. There really is LNG. Um, you know, do we have a business case in Canada? Do we have a business case to get to Europe? Do we only have a business case to get to Asia? You know, what about clean electricity to support those LNG projects? What about indigenous participation? What about emissions accounting, not only locally, but globally? Someone came into my office the other day and they were talking about scope for emissions. And I was kind of had to say, no, I said, you just made that up. He said, no, no, I just reached for your bottle of vodka in that second drawer, didn't you, Janet? (laughs) But it's a thing. So, you know, how do you, how do, how can we talk about on this podcast some of these new ideas that are coming forward that I think, you know, I don't certainly don't have all the answers, but I really enjoy talking and hearing from smart people who have ideas about them. So, you know, to that end, this is, this is great. I'm really looking forward to it. These are all great suggestions for future episodes so uh let's get to them all stay tuned listeners we're uh we're going there jay how any thoughts uh reflections words of wisdom from you before we sign off here yeah i just think this is a really dynamic time as we work on a sectoral caps um as we try and figure out you know what what canada's industrial strategy looks like in in the midst of this sort of war for subsidization and and friend shoring um so what a dynamic year uh what a great team uh we're gonna have a good time on this on this little uh garage band and and hopefully janet will keep singing (laughs) stick with us for more of janet's singing and uh and a whole lot more uh we're so grateful that you stuck around to the end of this episode let us know what you thought on our different social media platforms Please do subscribe to us if you haven't done so already. And we hope that you'll stick with us in this journey. We're really committed to pumping out a whole bunch of new and exciting episodes in 2023. You have been listening to Pipelines and Turbines. I'm Leo Rothschild. I've been joined by Janet Ainsley and Jason Switzer. You'll be hearing more episodes with uh, all three of us uh, in the near future. 
Thank you and have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your day. Peace out.